Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, on the podcast today, we have Dr. Bruce Tenor. Welcome to the podcast, Bruce. How you doing, Ben? Doing awesome. Doing awesome. Great to have you. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast on the territories of the Talaman, Comox, Clayhus, and Homoko First Nations, uh, who were uh, one borderless community um, uh, before we settlers came in and shoved them all into reserves. Um, and uh, just uh, want to put a send a special shout out. This this episode um, we're recording. This episode today's June sixth, twenty twenty three. Um, and it's kind of part of our uh, on the road to, to Baba series. So this episode is actually going to come out fairly quickly. Normally there's about a three or three to six month kind of wait, but this one's going to come out within a couple of weeks. Um, and um, on a related note, um, just in terms of my kind of territorial acknowledgement, I just want to acknowledge um, uh, all of the great work that the uh, uh, First Nations uh, emergency services, First Nations firefighters are 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 doing right now as our province and our whole country and probably our whole continent here is on fire right now from um, uh, all these uh, savage forest fires and just crazy drought conditions. Um, uh, a special shout out to the Talaman uh, Fire Department who uh, I've had the opportunity to learn from both uh, technically and culturally and much grateful for that. So yeah, grateful to be here, grateful to be on these unceded lands and grateful to have Dr. Bruce here with me. Thank you. Uh, but first off, Bruce, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a bit how you got into ABA, but also kind of, you know, where, where how, how you got into the work you're doing in schools. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so first, I started my career uh, as a school teacher. I was a preschool teacher and kindergarten teacher. So I wow. went to school uh, for early childhood. Uh, when I graduated, I got a job. First year was, I live in Pennsylvania, mm. uh, worked in downtown Pennsylvania. And then from there, the next 10 years, I went to New Jersey. And that's where I was an early childhood teacher. So I taught, again, mm. I was a special education teacher where I taught three, four-year-olds and also kindergarten. Wow. So then I went to school um, to, uh, you know, for my special education master's uh, degree. So I needed a class and I spoke to my, one of my professors and he was like, listen, why don't you just go for your administrator's? Certificate. I was like, well, I had no interest in going into leadership because mm. uh, because I would just love being a teacher. Um, yeah. I just love working with students with special needs, and I just loved um, just being around just you know children and working with staff and just just being a early childhood teacher is just so it's just amazing because you just um, in highly engaging students. You're teaching yeah. them so many skills. Um, they have a Really, uh, as far as a school experience, you know, you have a they have a clean slate, so I like to say, and like mm. you know, you have the opportunity just to um, load their slate up with positive with positive things, and you know, highly reinforce them and just teach yeah. them at a young age uh, for the early childhood, you know, uh, um, faction of, of students. So mm. after ten years or eleven year, um, I ended up going to school. I said, you know, let me just go, and when I went back to school. Um, it wasn't until my final year, my last year for um, a master's degrees for education leadership, where 
um, I had to do my supervision hours. I had to do like 100 or 360 hours for a semester. Mm. And that's when it was really exposed to me. Like, wow, like, you know, I, I'm, you know, a leader within my own classroom and I'm making changes. But, you know, having that opportunity to like meet and sit uh, with your uh, you know, superintendent, your principals and, mm. and put you in a position of leadership. And you really saw the change you can make with whether it's policy or whether it's staff training or whether it's the you know rapport you're building or, or the culture you're setting in your school how it really impacts the school yeah. so that's what kind of led me into moving from as an early childhood special education teacher you know to um uh to uh leadership so there mm. as a teacher I actually you know uh early in my career you know went to school for behavior analysis but then i just ceased that and i just you know what i want to just kind of focus more on um, kind of, kind of the leadership. So when I got that, yeah. I had an opportunity to be a five or four coordinator, get some experience with that, and then um, had an opportunity uh, eight years ago to come back to Pennsylvania, where um, I, I worked as an autistic support supervisor. So mm. there, I was able to really work with, you know, a population. I mean, again, I was in Jersey for ten. Even though I lived in Pennsylvania, I was in Jersey teaching for ten years. So I was really very um well versed in new jersey law but when i came back you know i was obviously had to get uh reacclimated to pennsylvania you know to pennsylvania's laws and regulations for special education mm. um it was a little bit of a learning curve but i had a great you know team and great mentors and great support built in to really you know walk me through um the shift and change from not only a different state but back to leadership uh to a new position in leadership mm. uh, so for there um that's when um I was working with the population and working with a lot of staff um, in, in various schools. So in Pennsylvania, we have something called intermediate units and they're kind of service uh, agencies that um, school districts uh, within a county or multiple counties work together. Um, and they kind of just, you know, it's like a consortium of money that kind of uh, help provide the resources. So the intermediate units can uh, go out there and just, uh, provide different types of resources for school districts. So mm. like, you know, special education, whether center-based or whether in school, consultation, curriculum development, any type of training that's required, um, you know, intermediate units um, are there to help support districts in their uh, neighboring counties. Um, mm. So we were uh, colonial uh, intermediate units. I did it for four years. It was a great experience. I learned mm. a lot in regards to um, uh, not only the population, you know, for autism, you know, but also to from an administrative aspect, um, that was just a double combination. So you have to be very versed in the instruction and understanding, you know, kind of the science of applied behavioral analysis. So that kind of led me to say, you know what, if I want to work in this, um, you know, environment uh, with the population, then, you know, you definitely want to make sure. So I would end up going back for my, uh, you know, BCBA several years ago hmm. when I first started as administrator. So that was, like I said, a great four years, had a wonderful opportunity to work with some phenomenal staff and some students that I learned a lot from. Hmm. Um, then I had an opportunity to uh, go to uh, Montgomery County Intermediate Unit uh, for the last four years as a building principal, program administrator for emotional support. And kind of the reason behind that was because obviously, um, you know, obviously behavior analysis, a lot of the focus, a lot of the research, you know, is on autism. So this was kind of, an opportunity to see, all right, can, can this science uh, really apply to this population? Because, you know, from my experience and historically speaking, I, I've never really seen uh, what, what would a, um, not only a classroom, what about a building of students with emotional behavioral disorders with high vocal repertoire 
and um, you know, uh, with different type of needs than the, mm. the population before, how would that look using the science of applied behavioral analysis? That kind of motivated me to take that uh, position. So I took the position and um, mm. it was a daunting task at first. It was very challenging. Uh, we had a small group of students, like I think 17 or 18 students, but um, it was pretty intense because you have a lot of students in the emotional behavioral disorder uh, program um, with uh, significant maladaptive behaviors that were very dangerous. Um, mm. A lot of multiple disorders. Many of our students were taking uh, psychotropic medication. Uh, some of our students were at residential facilities. So we're taking them and we're ed providing education for them. So uh, we had a high number of restraints. We had like you know, 90 the first 40 days of school. Wow. Um, yeah. So obviously this is an opportunity to find out how effective, uh, <laughs> you know, the science can be to really decrease uh, problem behavior. So obviously it's a combination of a lot of different things that was conducted. You know, obviously you need to make sure that you provide, you know, staff training, um, but also, you you know, you build in other systems that you typically, and that's the beauty of the, the science of applied behavioral analysis. There's various um, principles that can be implemented um, for specific populations. So obviously, um, you know, we use, you know, token economy systems that were used. Uh, we implemented, uh, obviously, a school-wide positive behavioral support system, um, you know, in, in our school. And then uh, that's for the whole school for all the students and just, you know, you have to have a rule governing behavior, right? These are certain mm. things you, you must do. And then from there, uh, with token economy systems, um, that obviously we all started it on a, like, a continuous, you know, a continuous reinforcement where students were receiving reinforcement. Mm. Um extensively, you know, and then after that, we obviously you'd fade and put them on an intermittent schedule of reinforcement after that. And after, and then each individual for the more intensive students um, will receive a different type of treatment. So we kind of, even though we were, so we're in a center-based program uh, where we have a small, small program in, in a school. So you still have to operate and function as a school. So you mm -hmm. had to look at your students and even though they're all special ed and they all have multiple needs, um, you still have to operate and function like a school. So we tiered them the way you do it in a gen ed school. Um, so the students with, um, although every student was referred to us, uh, just the way it works, school districts, if a student has behavioral needs in their school and uh, the behaviors exceed the amount of supports that could be offered mm. um, in public school, then they have to refer them out to a, a private or a public school, but that can meet their needs from a behavioral standpoint. Mm. That's what that's what you know we are. So when we receive these students, obviously every student, obviously you, you say on tier three, pretty intensive, right? Because they're coming with um extremely maladaptive behavior. So once the behaviors get in order, then obviously you know you look at your your roster and you gotta tier them. You know which are you know the eighty percent of your students, although they're here, but if they fall within the confines of your structure, um, eighty percent of your students are not engaging in significant maladaptive behaviors daily. And you look at your 15%, which would be like, you know, your tier two, what kind of other supports is needed. And then those individuals would be, would be much more intense support, you know, with that upper. Maybe they would need, you know, counseling, or maybe they would need um, some type of extra level support, maybe an extra pullout. And then obviously you look at your really intense ones. Um, this is, again, this is not in the public school. This is in a, um, uh, a center-based school, although we're public mm -hmm. sector, still center-based. So it's um we don't have any students from general education they're all special needs so you you know you're pretty intense mm. kids that's when you would do a little bit more intensive treatment so to speak so um you know you would have to um, use various forms of uh, treatment 
uh, to really address a lot of the problem behaviors. Um, so, you know, and also depending on the needs to, you know, you create behavior contracts for certain students um, to make sure they're able to contact reinforcement much more frequently. Um, but I understand too, you know, if, if um, the contractual agreement has been breached, um, then obviously, you know, unfortunately, you're not able to contact reinforcement. But a lot of our programs are really based on, you know, providing high rates of positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And the uh, most important part, um, and that's about the consequence strategy, but the most important part, I, you know, I think when you're working with kids is the antecedent interventions are very critical. And also the consequence strategies are very critical too. But the, the opportunity to teach the students the, uh, the skill, the replacement behavior, and that's the most important part, you know, whether um, it's a man repertoire uh, or whether it's just teaching an alternative to, you know, the behavior. So these are things that are critical. So it's just taking that opportunity to find time to build in uh, during whether contrived setting or even in a natural environment uh, where you're able to practice certain skills um, when some kind of aversive stimulus has been presented to you. How, how are you going to mm-hmm. respond during you practice these opportunities one-on-one, uh, small group, Again, contrived or even in natural environments to just really teach and then you check for generalization to make sure that under these conditions, has this child, you know, produced the response we're looking for. And if mm-hmm. he does, or she does, then you highly reinforce mm-hmm. those behaviors to make sure that, you know, they contact reinforcement, you know, for a response that it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that's what it is. So right now, I mean, our restraints, as you know, we, we started a restraint initiative and it went, you know, from 90 to like 15 kids. And you look at the data, I mean, we kind of quadruple the number of kids and significantly reduce uh, the restraints. I mean, again, you're going to get students rotating in and out, um, you know, from our program, but we barely cracked 10 a month, give or take. And we're up to like, I say, quadruple the number of kids, you know, probably around 55, 60 students from a 10. When I say intense, I mean, that's, and the students, the students with intense backgrounds, you know, um, very unfortunate, very sad backgrounds, but mm. pretty uh, challenging learning histories uh, that our program. Again, we at times we barely cracked ten a month compared to uh, the original baseline we had, and that's you know, it's just the practice of the science. It's just understanding the science, you know, um, making sure that all staff are understanding, trained, and you know, having staff that really can just implement the plan having great behavior analysts, you know, down underneath me who can really help support the staff and train the staff and mm. sure that um, you pair with students, um, making sure that, you know, the students feel cared for and loved and you, you're highly reinforcing, you know, appropriate responses and, you know, you're going to have to run, run a good program. It's a little bit more complex than that, but that's just the kind of the basis of like, you know, uh, you know, our, our building. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And, and it's great. Just, just great seeing how, across different exceptionalities and students with different needs that, you know, as long as you, you follow the principles, um, you're going to see success. So we're very fortunate to, um, you know, uh, having our students be very successful in our program. And then last thing too, for our program, the great thing is, is the fact that, um, you know, when, you know, our number one goal for our, our program is to make sure that, you know, we provide high rates of interventions and treatment. So when the student's can go back to their home school district, be reintegrated back to their community, back mm. to their school, ride the bus with their kids, hang out with their kids. When adversity uh, or some adverse stimulus presented, they're able to respond appropriately and not to, for, for them to have them come back to us or be uh, referred again to us. And thus far, um, what, four years, we've discharged many students, probably about 40 students, 50 students over the last you know, four years, and not one has ever returned back to us. 
So that's wow. plus that, you know, when we're ready to discharge a student, you know, we're making sure that um, they're ready um, and also to they have the acquired skill. And the students know when they're ready too. Not only do we explain to them their behaviors and talk about their data, but also um, they'll know when they're ready. You know, they'll know that, you know, what their tolerance is. And they'll, some of our students tell us they're nervous to go back. And we have systems put in there to make sure that before they go back, we give them a tour at their current or new school or back to their own school. We make sure that, you know, a staff is with them, one of our staff with them to help them out with the tour. Um, you know, we have like this open consultation collaboration with the school to make sure any questions they have, they can always reach out to us. So there's things we do to build in there to make sure the transition smooth for the learner, for the family too, because it's a learning, you know, it's hard for the family too. When their child's successful and they don't get the phone calls they used to get, um, you know, it's kind of challenging, you know, for that concern, like, oh, well, am I going to get the phone calls again? But um, again, it's, it's, you know, for for the most part, actually, we had, we never had a student return back to us, which is, again, kudos to the science, but kudos to the wonderful staff we have, and you know, um, working really hard to make sure we provide a, a uh, amazing program for these students. Wow. Okay. So just kind of breaking some of this down a bit. So are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug and play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beal Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmgfreeconsult.com. That's bmgfreeconsult.com. You're you're in one school, correct? Correct. Yeah, and and it's a center-based school for yes. for kids that have sort of severe emotional behavioral disorders, those sorts of things. Uh, we're not so certain, not necessarily talking about autism, or talking about sort of you know folks that. Um, and we do we uh, we do have so just to be clear, and okay. Bruce, we do service students with autism. Obviously, if you look at the DSM five, mm. which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, yeah. Um, when that came out um, ten years ago, yeah. They you know, reorganize the, you know, um, autism before it was, you know, now it's, you know, level one, level two, level three, before yeah. we had to find the umbrella and right. you had like, you know, PDD and OS. And, sure, and sure. But now it's going to be um, level. So obviously if the students, um, depending on what level you are, so obviously they're lower level and they're non-vocal and their repertoire is very limited. Uh, that would require what they would say is for certain, you know, areas or states or they'll say VB, you know, verbal behavior with mm. more intensive instruction or uh, discrete trial training or ITT. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that ITT. So that, that's when they'll go out there and um, that will be appropriate for our program. But we do have students who are, quote unquote, I'm using the old terminology, like, you know, or they say high functioning or Asperger, so to speak, that sure. terminology is no longer. But like yeah. that, you know, we have certain, we service those students. We do have 
uh, a, a portion of our students with autism. Mm, okay. And, mm -hmm. and is this, and is this like one classroom or is this a school like a K to 12? Like what, what's sort of the, the, the environment there? Sure. Um, so we are uh, a K six building. We have okay. seven classrooms mm. uh, and you know, you by Pennsylvania law, you can have up to 12 full-time students in a classroom um, for the sanity of my staff. Uh, we won't, we won't pack 12 intensive students in one classroom. So we kind of try to cap it around eight, nine, some has 10, depending on again, the needs, um, obviously you want to make sure it's safe. That's the number one thing we have to ensure that if we're going to put uh, students with a severe and a long, um, you know, a learning history of, of aggression and disrobing and, you know, self-interest behaviors and property destruction, you know, you just can't pack 12 kids in a classroom and just, you know, you have to be very uh, uh, judicious on how you make sure you're placing students with the right mm. classroom right dynamic. So you got to be very strategic. And if you do have a classroom with five kids in there, which is pretty intense, you want to make sure that classroom is stabilized before you start bringing other kids in there. Mm. So, so it's, you know, again, so it's a K, it's K six, um, you know, and, and then we have um, seven classrooms and I give, we try to cap around eight, nine students, you know, uh, in the classroom. And so, so that's, so it, I think, and probably could spend a whole series diving into the laws around here you talked a bit about sort of how you were used to Penn and Pennsylvania and the laws there and you and then you went to New Jersey and got used to the laws there and then you went back and you had to kind of get you know re re re, re you know relearn some of the, the laws and the difference do the, do the laws really vary a lot from state to state as far as you know education yeah. and whatnot like what, what kind oh, of yeah. things do you have to really be thinking about like like how is it super different like i know nothing about this um yeah it, it, it uh also yes and no well idea which is the individual disability education act right, right. i came out in 1990 um and obviously the revision happened in 2004 mm -hmm. for the idea um that so they have a federal law. So the federal law sets a mandate on special education, mm -hmm. you know, regs. Uh, but obviously, um, the states have rights, and yeah. the state, you know, um, so the, the state government are able to impose certain, um, you know, just the uh, sanctions and and also laws. But you just can't. The federal government sets a guideline. You just can't um, do something outside the realm that's going to be in violation mm -hmm. of law. It can be within. So, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania. If you something called child find, if you want to evaluate a child, uh, any evaluation, it's sixty uh, calendar days. Calendar is includes weekends. Mm. Okay, wow. uh, but in but in New Jersey, it's ninety, and I think it's mm. ninety school days. So mm. that means if it's vacations, if it's day off, it's holiday. Those days don't count. So right. as you can see, the evaluation process um, would be you know um, much more. Um, you know, expedited in Pennsylvania because you have a shorter time than a state like mm -hmm. New Jersey has 90. So again, the laws are different, but the, but you still have to evaluate a child. You yeah. can't have, you can't get into special education without an evaluation. That just can't yeah, happen. Yeah, you can't yeah, place yeah. in a special education classroom without the property. That's, that's IDEA federal law. You right. Legal. You can't do that. So, but the evaluation timing can be different um, based on that. And that's just one of many different variations of like how, mm. but again, it's very similar, but you just can't go within the outside of the realm of the federal mandate, but states are different within their rights of like 
um, timelines. Right. And now what about funding? Like what, what's funding like? And in, 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 so like, does it vary if it's a federal yeah. sort of thing, is, is, are, is each state sort of federally funded with a bunch of dollars and they just sort of do what they want? Well, the way that way it works, more, the majority of the funding. Well, the majority of the funding for for public education is through your local state, your local government. Mm. So your local government makes the majority of that because your property tax, your school taxes, right. they fund the schools. Then you're going to have your state taxes, uh, uh, your state grants. You have a lot. There's a lot of programs that have the state gives the money, mm. um, and then from there you have federal funds too. Federal funds is, is the least. They give you, mm. you know, there are some things. I know COVID was really big. COVID gave you a lot of funds. And that was kind of like, you know, one of very few times the federal government gave a, a boatload of money, yeah. um, public schools and a local, you know, and there's always controversy how the money is allocated and what. But, um, yeah, so the federal government usually gives the least amount of money, um, although they have the biggest mandate of what they've <laughs> right. done. Sure. They give you the least amount of money. Right. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's usually, so it goes it goes from bottom up, not from top down for your funding. Yeah. So local community gives you. Uh, revenues the most, and then you have your state funds, and then you have your federal funds, which gives mm. you the least. And our, and our, and I mean, I'm, yeah, obviously, I'm working across the country, but I'm sure you've talked to folks. Are 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 some states like really sort of deficient in funding compared to others? Because you know, like you know, maybe the governments just are like, well, edu- we don't need education. We we need we you know we we need more you know, well, police or whatever you know, and so on. Well, we, we wouldn't go by state. It would go by re, uh, within the region of your state. Obviously, like you know, um, every state has um, poverty, and many you know areas or maybe small areas have um, an affluent area. So, mm. um, but yeah, but that but depending on, on unfortunately, and let's just be honest about it, all inner cities for the most part are going to be underserved and underrepresented. You just you go any Philadelphia, Mississippi, you can go to Los Angeles, all the city schools, no matter how big and how big the revenue is, I mean, they're always going to be underserved. So, mm. um, but then you're going to have affluent areas on the outskirts of bigger cities that are really doing well mm. um, based on a lot of reallocation of money, your tax bracket, um, your, your tax revenue that comes in from the suburbs outside the city. Um, you know, they, they help obviously school districts. Uh, you know, with, with with the infrastructure and a lot of their fundings for resources and programming. Yeah. And so, so that, that's kind of how it works. So um, for statewide, again, it's hard to say. Um, Pennsylvania, I, I would say is, you know, there's some reasons Pennsylvania, obviously the cities, but also to some small rural areas that don't get, you know, the best mm-hmm. funding. Mm-hmm. However, I would say overall, Pennsylvania would be more in the top of the state for as far as being a little bit more progressive with your education. Yeah, um, yeah. Two that are really underfunded, um, and uh, resources are very limited too. Unfortunately, um, I'm just being quite frank. So all, to all my all my uh, southern brethrens and my sisters, um, you know, some some of the southern states are unfortunately significantly underserved mm. and under very uh, underprivileged too. Um, I, I know of a couple of states that just you know going through and having peers. Um, you know, reading through some of their IPs and reading some of their uh, what they have to offer. Um, you know, it's well, Pennsylvania is light years. Although Pennsylvania, you know, we can we can do better. We I think we do a really good job in PA, and we can always do better. But compared to what I've seen with other states, it's just like whoa, mm-hmm. um, these states are uh, struggling. And the reason I ask is, 
it sounds like a lot of the things you're doing, you know, um, you know, everything from, you know, these intermediate unit units to, um, uh, you know, uh, even just having a center-based school to having, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, caps on classroom sizes that are so low for those schools, mm-hmm. uh, like to, to sort of like, even even to say, and of course you said, and school, and, and of course we're going to do school-wide PBS, of course we're going to, just the phrase, of course we're going to, uh, you know, is, is, is not something I would hear anything about in sort of my neck of the woods, um, um, uh, you know, uh, in terms of sort of, you know, having the resources to have you know, inter, inter, you know, cross district support teams that come in, like everything in, in my neck of the woods, it seems to be district by district and everything is insular within a district. I don't know that the, the districts really play well together um, and, the, and and things change so dramatically. And then, it, and then it even breaks down between, you have a district, but then you have different school boards and it, well, it, it you know, and which you probably have those as well, which, yeah. gets, which, which gets even more complicated. And so I, I guess what I'm, I guess there's a long-winded way of, of going of one of saying I I I I I know from sort of you know past readings and, and interviews and podcasts and what that you've done that you know you're definitely you know a strong leader and 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 work a lot in that area, but also you've got to have the resources. And so it is is could you have a program like this in one of those southern states, or is, is a lot of this sort of money dependent? And and okay. uh, you know what I'm saying? It's twofold because one, you're going to need resources and money. It's very important that you have that. Um, you know, special education is a very uh, yep. expensive um, program. You know, for all the related services you're going to require: speech, OT, physical therapy, counseling, behavior, you know, analog services. Um, transportation, that all costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um, also, too, you're going to need a strong leader with a good vision of what you want your program to look like. You know, yeah. if you just, um, and that can, you know, leadership, your decision can be contingent on, you know, the resource you have. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. If money, if money is an MO, um, obviously for you to go out there and build a strong program, then you will. But if there's no money and, you know, there's, there's, uh, deprivation so to speak and you really want money but you can't you can't you know use it obviously yeah. you'd be ready to like look for it but if there's no money in it then you obviously you're not going to be able to go out there and serve so that so those are two things so one you need the resources two if you have the resources you need to have the vision mm-hmm. you really need to have a good understanding of what you want a strong program to look like so yeah yeah no for sure and i just i just think about sort of all of the all of the uh, moving parts you got to kind of deal with as an administrator. So you're so you're running this particular center-based school. That is that your where, where yes. your role is. Okay. Yes. Um, and um, and so before you came in, um, you know, were any of these sorts of things already in place? Like, was there were, were you already in a school that that was doing school-wide PBS? Was ABA uh-huh. part of this? sort of program, those sorts of things? Or did you bring all that in? There was an absolute, the only, only thing there was there was just the floor. The just floor the floor. And the, just the floor. Yeah, you know, we, yeah it, it was under reconstruction. We didn't even have a ceiling. <laughs> it was the wires. <laughs> yeah, we had wires that came out. It was, it was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, it was a bad situation. So, you know, um, it was really nothing. We there was nothing put in place at all. So it legitimately, um, 
it was from scratch. So I'd like to hear a little more about that, like sort of how you went from sort of well, the school with the floor to, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we started, so I took, I started this position in 2019. Um, it was under oh, renovation. Yeah. yeah, not too long ago. It was under renovation um, and things happened. Um, so they were behind schedule, unfortunately. So we really didn't get in there until the day of, because again, it was just unfortunate. That's just the way it happened. So we got in there on the first day, all the staff and, you know, um, saw the building and the kids came in there like 45 minutes later. So wow. um, the staff did a wonderful job just getting things in order, you know, to, to really get things organized. But again, it was just, there was nothing set, there was no structure. There was, even if the building was um, a Taj Mahal, so to speak, it, mm -hmm. it really wouldn't have mattered only because it was an accessible place. You know, the environment is is critical and and you have to have systems within the environment. Um, it's not just to have in a room, like it's it's really like the contingencies within the environment that are gonna be able to go out there and, you know, whether manipulate or able to just sustain certain behaviors. Yeah. Uh, when I got there, it was legitimately, we had nothing. So um, wow. again, hence hence the 90 restraints in a 40 day span, sure. um, which was pretty intense. So, you know, we just looked at everything and I just, uh, you know, collaborated with, with um, you know, my team. We also had some folks from, you know, in Pennsylvania, we have different, so many different, um, you know, agencies. We have, uh, again, intermediate units. There's something called, you know, Patton, which is uh, um, a system that's built in Pennsylvania to help provide supports, technical assistance, you know, mm. to um, to schools, you know, all over, uh, free yeah. of charge. And this is state ran. So this is nothing like in the federal or local. This is uh, more of the state. Um, so um, it's like the training arm of the bureau. So the, mm. we have a bureau of special education. Um, and underneath that is, you know, you're going to have like, you know, obviously uh, patent and then you're going to have um, also, um, and patent stands for Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistant uh, Network. And then you're mm. going to have intermediate units, which are all over uh, the state of uh, um, Pennsylvania. So we collaborate with them, collaborate with the team members um, within our own uh, organization and just tell them, hey, we got to put this frame up. So, you know, we just said we need something quick and immediate. So we just looked at like, a, you know, a, a start and establishing a, a school wide. And the first thing we got to do is look at from high, you know, high down to low. So each student obviously comes with their own needs, but mm. it's hard to address each student's uh, individual need if you don't have a structure put in place. Like if you don't have this overarching framework yeah. um, of what the standard is to be quote unquote, you know, uh, good uh, or, you know, behave in a response that's appropriate, yeah. then you trying to work individually is going to be more challenging because what you do is for a school-wide um, system, you know, you always want to link their behaviors back to what the goal, you know, what the overarching uh, behavior expectations are. So yes. you can always go back to that. If you don't have anything to go back to, then you're trying to work with the students with their needs and it's not linking up to some kind of overarching system. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a big systems guy. I'm all about systems. I'm all about people make systems, but when you have a system, you can just walk right in there. And as long as the people in the system are well-trained and, you know, uh, uh, inversed and, you know, we, we should have continuity within the organization. So hmm. once we started doing that, the first thing we had to do was just, again, look at like where the barriers are. So we didn't have a framework. So, you know, as a team, we created a framework um, to say, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to go out there and, you know, uh, set up a school-wide. So our, our, we, we, we coined a phrase, uh, ROAR, 
um, you know, and the acronym stand for, you know, respect, ownership, attitude, responsibility. Hmm. And then with that, we created a matrix. And then within that hmm. matrix, um, we specifically went in there to detail measurable and observable behavior, what we're looking for for these areas in the classroom, when you go into the restroom, when you go into the gym, when you go into the cafeteria, any area in on the bus, because the bus technically is still considered school property for mm-hmm. those who may know. So if you live an hour away and there's something you're cutting up on the bus, <laughs> it's still considered school property. So yeah. any sanctions that's imposed on you during school for an infraction, the same can happen on the bus an hour away. Mm-hmm. School property mm-hmm. for those who may not know. Um, so those um, so once you create this framework of like, okay, this is how you do it, and then slowly the students you can go back to. Um, you know, some type of um, uh, framework that students can understand, like this is expectation. Like, this is what the acronym stands for. This is what it looks like. And and the students are able to contact reinforcement. So that's when like, you know, you start bringing in a token economy system where you now, you, the students, now we have tickets. You know, you can use a token, poker chips. Mm-hmm. We just decided to use tickets. Um, and it's all, it's, you know, hence the word token economy is great because you're getting tickets like cash, but it's like little tickets. You get to count them too. So it's like, Kind of, you know, you, you're working on for some of our students, working on the math skills. Um, but the token economy systems are secondary, you know, uh, or generalized reinforcers. So, you know, we have to make sure we pair it. Because if you give a child a ticket, what does it mean? It means nothing to them. But mm. you, have to, you have to pair it. So you pair the ticket with good things. So when, you know, so the biggest things are going to be obviously some kind of level of primary reinforcer. So we're looking at like um, food, um edibles so if a student loves edibles then you pair if they comply or uh, they use this corrective response or they engage in inappropriate behavior you know if, if, if some kind of small edibles reinforcing for them you give them the edible plus a ticket and you know you let them know that good things happen when you do that and then eventually you fade the edible out and then you then they're able to get the ticket instead and you don't have to worry about always giving them food and sugar mm. you can do that temporarily for a short period of time you fade the candy out and then then they know that okay this ticket has value you know, good things happen. So you link it with some kind of, um, you know, edible plus also some kind of social reinforcements too, where it's a verbal specific praise, you know, physical contact, fist bump, high five, you know, things that are, you know, students love. And then using those tickets, we have a school store that was created. Um, and we, oh, sorry, uh, I just want to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this sounds fabulous. And, 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 and yeah, I think you're, you're exactly the way kind of, you know, you want to, Institute of Token Economy, and and uh, I can kind of see where you're going to go with the store here. I guess, again, this is, again, just me coming from this sort of angle where, you know, things like even getting a school-wide PBS framework into place is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and so I think, first off, just to, to clarify, on day one, you've got all your staff. Um, mm-hmm. um, how many staff do you have and how many kids do you have on day one? If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is transitions. Oof, staff, we started small. We only had three teachers, three paraprofessionals, one floater. With one behavior analyst, so about three, about like nine staff members. We start mm-hmm. a very small program, so mm-hmm. now we're up to you know over forty plus staff mm-hmm. and teachers. Um, so yeah, we're growing. But yes, day one was it was small, but it was 
it was uh and, and how many and how many kids were approximately on sort of the first day 17. Give or t- 17. okay so i think that's uh, the piece that maybe i'm missing too is that so it it, it it does seem i mean it's not easy nothing none of this is easy it takes work and and teamwork and, and collaboration of course but to get sort of nine staff on board with with a school-wide positive behavior support framework is a bit simpler than getting 40 or 80 or 100 staff on in in some of these bigger schools which you know and and then those things tend to fail i mean can can fail if if one you know doesn't have all of the measures and and you know buy-in and all that in place i know they talked about sort of like having you need something like 80 percent buy-in from your team in order for a a school-wide pbs sort of framework to, to work out did did you kind of have buy-in on day one for for doing this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the the, the cult obviously it wasn't even a culture established, but just seeing the need, I mean, it wasn't really hard for the buy-in because what was the alternative? Yeah. Like, do <laughs> you know, I mean, you're having kids crawling, rolling, like it was just it was pretty intense. So yeah. you know, at the time you like anything to work. So that's yeah, the, the buy-in because of the environment was it wasn't hard for the buy-in knowing yeah. that we needed something to be put in place. Not a yeah, situation yeah. where, you know, you're in a school that's, you know, it's, it's well maintenance and um, the behaviors aren't that extreme. And you feel like old school, you know, uh, this, this, you know, rule govern approach is just saying, this is how you're going to do it. And this is how it's going to be done. That's it. Um, and some power struggles, you know, some people, that's why sometimes you get pushed back a little bit because you're like, oh, I don't need that kind of stuff. Kids yeah. don't tokens. Just get it done the way I, I did back in 1957. Right, right. You know, it's just like, you know, so it's so yeah, so my situation, believe it or not, the, the students and the complexity of what I went through was pretty challenging. However, um, you know, the, the buy-in, you know, with the staff was much uh, simpler only because it was smaller and they knew that, you know, they wanted something that was you know, evidence-based and maybe something uh, implemented immediately. Yeah, yeah, cool. And then uh, uh, talking a little bit about sort of how how you brought sort of that ABA component, and maybe even before that, so, like what are, you know, and again, we're, I'm, we're still kind of four years ago, what kind of training were your staff coming in with? Um. In regards to just your basics, I mean, there wasn't no formal training with these level of behaviors. Right. Um, so, uh, just that you know, we actually we had, uh, believe it or not, uh, I think two of the three teachers were new. You know, one. Wow. Teacher, you know, one of our teachers came from a different uh, school district. Another one came from a different position. Came in there. Um, we only had one teacher that was present from the year prior. So it was again, it was really legit. When I tell you all new staff, mm-hmm. outside of one, we're all new. Yeah, yeah. And so what was sort of the, so I could totally see the school-wide PBS thing and how that, you know, you know, a a standard sort of base everything on fit well. Uh, Like when you started talking about like token economies and you started talking about sort of behavioral principles and bringing things in, what did that look like? Like, what, like you're, you're talking to folks that, you know, besides yourself have no formal training in ABA probably for the most part. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, what's it like to sort of, um, you know, start building these these behavior analytic systems within a context where where you know you don't have RBTs, you don't have sort of the standard sort of you know BCBA kind of ground up um, all ABA all the time sort of group 
Yeah, it was fun, believe it or not. I mean, hmm. I, nice. Yeah, it was it was pretty awesome. I think it was a great opportunity. I mean, there's so many levels to why it was great. Yeah. Um, we have wonderful staff um, that wanted to learn. I mean, they're motivated to learn and they wanted to enhance their skills and they wanted to make the classroom better, you know? Yeah. So it was fun because you had an opportunity, you know, through through myself, my behavior analyst, even support with um, folks uh, and some of our con- consultants from, you know, uh, patent, you know, they, they help support, provide a training uh, for our teachers and our staff to really help them out from, you know, behaviorally um, and creating systems. So I thought it was an awesome opportunity and the staff really, uh, really enjoyed it. But the biggest thing is, um, I want to make, and this is something that I think is very important for me, Mm. um, is the trainings are very critical. You know, those are very important staples of, uh, to support staff, you know, Mm. Um, but, you know, and those are phenomenal antecedent interventions, like, you know, trainings, you need before you even get into trainings and everything too, but uh, yeah. the feedback and also the constant uh, fidelity of what you were trained on, mm. that's, that's equally as important because, you know, when you train someone, it's great, but you have to make sure you're there to help support them because, you know, folks will drift. And also too, when you're in a diverse situation, you know, sometimes you revert back to skills you, you knew. So you want to make sure that, you know, you're doing things judiciously, systematically, ethically, uh, legally, and you want to make sure that you know, whatever implementation of, of the um, the plan is being implemented is being done, um, you know, efficiently and with efficacy as well, too. So, um, so just making sure and supporting, supporting uh, staff, you know, giving them feedback, too, is very mm-hmm. important. Um, uh, try your best. I know sometimes it's hard because things can go, you know, pretty get intense or busy, but if you do an observation or you train staff or walking through staff, you know, it's very critical that you just provide feedback for them. Um, so they just know what they're doing right and also mm. knowing that they can do better. Wow. And so within the kind of that first year then, so you said you started with like 90, you know, 90 mm-hmm. some restraints and, you know, and, and, kind of, and, and, and that was a month. Was that sort of the, the sort of a number? Is that what that 90 was from? Or? It was 40. It was 44 month one in September of 19 and October was 46. Okay, gotcha. And then from there, it, we, we, we started seeing those numbers go down. Yeah. November of 19 went to 28 and then December went to nine. Okay. Um, wow. And then, yeah, then we went to January, and, and I, I vividly remember this. Just, I don't have it in front of me, but no, it's Jan- good. January of 2020 was 12, uh, 10, and then uh, February and March was were 12, but then we had the pandemic. Yeah. And so what happened there? That was sort of be my next question. So, I mean, because you, you've been doing this for four years and, you know, for close to three of those were we were in this sort of you know worldwide pandemic and so um what 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 did sort of the school look like you know come march 2020 were, were kids you know it was it was it was uh it was sta- more you know the data supports is it was stable um yeah. you know it still it still had some challenges there's no doubt about it we still had some students um but you know it was stable you know we weren't in but were, as- were kids still going to school during the pandemic yes. Oh, oh okay. no, 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 no. So when the pandemic hit on, you know, March of 20, um, no, yeah. we skipped school. So we didn't, we were out April, May, June, in July, August, September. We came back in October of 20. Uh, so we came back, we um, went back into school. Okay. And so during that period, were you providing virtual, any, uh, virtual yeah. supports? Yeah, what, it, was just, it was just virtual. And what did that look like with, you know, these kinds of kids uh, that were, you know, have a lot of these difficulties? Uh, 
you know, you, you had you had some you know some students that were were challenging. You know, some, yeah. some students, many of our students were participatory. They engaged mm. in the content. Um, some of our students, you know, they were there, uh, but but they were not. You know, you mm. see their eyes going from left to right. Um, opening, closing rapidly, so you know they're not reading. You know they're playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like I know what you're playing. You're playing <laughs> Minecraft, buddy. I see your eyes. We're not even reading this novel right now. And your eyes going back and forth. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you see, you see a screen lighting up, and you see like all these color contrasting in the space. Sure. And I'm like, okay, my the story is not that exciting. So I know you're watching <laughs> this. Um. So you know those. You know, and then you had certain students with the um the cameras off. Right. Um, And that was a big deal for a lot of people because, you know, it was just a big thing. Like, you know, uh, you know, some students may be embarrassed with their home. Some students say they're shy in front of the camera. So it was just hard to gauge Mm. who was. So that was it was tough. It was a very tough time, you know, um, during that time. And what about staff? Did you have troubles with like staff retention and whatnot during the pandemic and and sort of post and. uh, no, I mean, I thought for, for our, I'm speaking just for our program, okay? yeah. you know, on statewide and other sure. places on the states were struggling, but for us, we were pretty solid. I mean, we retained everyone. We were able to retain staff during the pandemic. That's amazing. Yeah. We, we didn't have to let anyone go. Um, that was a conversation that we thought because, you know, everything stopped. Businesses yeah. stopped. So they didn't know what, what the, the nature of public education was going to be at that time. So, um, but everything got supported and we kept all of our staff and, um, yes, yeah, all the staff who was during the pandemic returned back. That's amazing. Us. Yeah, it was great. It was a blessing. That's amazing. And that's really, I mean, I think sort of a testament to, I think, your leadership and the program you put into place, because this is not, that's not, not the answer I expected. <laughs> you, know, you know, so. No, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Now you're 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 kind of you're four years into the program. Um, how so? How long? So these are all so again. These are all kids that get referred from other schools, other districts because mm-hmm. they have sort of severe behavioral emotional needs, um, and uh, and and they come in here. And and, and is the placement sort of um, does it have a set time or is it just all sort of you know whatever the data shows? That's when we decided to transition or like are these sorts of is there sort of a limit to the length of time they could be in your school? Like, how does that all work? No, okay, good, good question. So uh, the referral, once they get admitted to the program, um, obviously we, we um, provide a level of support for them. So we, we, there's uh, the timeline we have is is the student um, for, so we, we look at like the learning history. So look at the current data. So how long have these problems been? And every school district is different. So Certain school districts may have different tolerance for certain students, and that's only because of the kind of supports they have. So certain mm. schools, because of resources, you know, may have multiple BCBAs, and maybe they have their own center-based program. Right. So they probably, you know, working with this intense child for a long time. So they're like, okay, you know, this child's, you know, pretty intense. And we know certain school districts, if they, if they send us a referral, that child's really intense because they have all the resources. Well, you may have, unfortunately, certain schools that don't have as many resources. So, you know, they may be a little bit more likely to send send them our uh, send the students our way only because they don't have it. It's just financially they don't they don't have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to make it work. All our districts really want to make it work. It's just that the resources. So um, so they come to us and then we look at the history and just say, how long have these behaviors are occurring? What's the intensity, the magnitude? What's the duration? What's the frequency? What's the topography? What does it look like? 
we're looking at obviously function, but the most important part is like how long has it been happening? And it's mm. been like six years, these intensive behaviors, then we have to analyze and find out, you know, just the contingencies in the environment that's been producing these responses, medication, looking at hospitalization records. Like we got to review everything. And then if they come to us, we then we look for, you know, kind of like stabilization, like um, looking at, you know, minimum of six months. You got to show mm -hmm. us that you, the behaviors that you came to school with, mm -hmm. you know, we want to see low rates or, you know, we really want to see extension. We don't want to see any behaviors mm -hmm. uh, again. Um, you know, um, but if we see extremely low rates of behaviors or no behaviors, then during the springtime, we have those conversations about what it looks like for the following year. Mm. Um, that, and there's no really, some students, you know, it may take a you know year and a half to some students, maybe a little bit longer, again, based on their need. Um, so, mm. and, and, and that's what but we always try to like, look at, uh, you know, what type of programming um, each student needs and, you know, would they programming be suffice in a public school or mm. would it be suffice in a small school? Because some students, believe it or not, and, and this is another like a little um, IDEA and, and state laws, but like there's something called um, least restrictive environment. And yep. that's just, that, uh, if you're familiar with that terminology, that's yep. just a law that indicates that, you know, when, when a school, when a child is, you know, uh, identified as having special needs, the district's job is to make sure that the students, um, before you place or look for any kind of supports that's needed, you know, have the student, have the school district um, looked to in, uh, to ensure that they're providing the level of support in their with their non-disabled peers or their neurotypical peers, you know, mm. and in there, and you're not putting them in a self-contained classroom or you're not restricting access to the gen ed curriculum and gen ed activities. Um, so that's kind of a least restrictive. So that's you know, we look for those things like, okay, now the child, I'm going back to our program now. Now the child has been stabilized. Can this child be reintegrated back based on behaviors? Um, you know, or do they may need a, um, maybe a step-down program that's not with, um, you know, students in gen ed, but it's extremely mild. There's no significant aggression. Like the school, you know, they move up or they, they move, you know, they, um, they move upward and onward from our school and they need a middle school or they need another high school, you know, can that be maybe a step down to back to the public school rather than just trying to send them right there? Because some students, um, least restrictive means different things. Some students um, can be, have an IEP, have autism and speech, but they're in gen ed for 80, 90% of the day. Right. Um, you have certain students in there who are um, self-contained in their homeschool, but 20% of their they are with non-disabled you know, peers, lunch, recess, specials, maybe a core content, um, depending on how um, the IP is written. Um, and then there's just certain students that, you know, may not have access to um, general education students based on their, you know, their history of behaviors. But, you know, we look at all these things to find out, okay, this duration of time, which is typically six months hmm. of, you know, you know, aggression, self-injurious behaviors, property destruction, all these things that, can cause a lot of disruption to five, 600 kids, 27, yeah. 30 kids in the classroom. Now that can't happen in that environment. So we analyze that and find out, okay, once stabilized, what type of programming, you know, do they stay with us a little bit or, you know, are they ready to move back uh, into, um, you know, integrated back with their, with their uh, non-disabled peers in their home school. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. 
Hoomhouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Hoomhouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is emotional. Hmm, cool. I want to talk about the transitions in a second. Uh, I'm curious, what's sort of the makeup of sort of each class? So you obviously have a teacher in each class. Uh, how many, how many, and you have, you said you have sort of, you know, seven or eight kids in each class. Um, how many, how many other staff are in that classroom at sort of any given time? So the classroom model is one teacher and one paraprofessional. Okay. Yeah. And now there's going to be certain students that uh, may require a personal care assistant or a one-to-one. And that's mm-hmm. basically, so the way it works is this. So when school districts refer students to us, they'll, um, that student typically, typically may have a personal care assistant or one-to-one already written in the IEP. And they come to us, um, obviously, you know, kind of, we kind of keep what's ever in there. We, we um, analyze the student, we analyze the need um, just in case that need is required, that level of support is required. So um, typically how we do things here, you know, in PA, you typically, when you transfer someone over to a school or from a, their school to an intermediate unit program, you know, we usually hold IEP meetings within 30 days just to transfer everything over, give an update yeah. to the family on how things are going, to the districts, how things are going. And then from there, based on data, um, they'll let us know if a, uh, if that personal care assistant or one-on-one is needed or not. So um, if we don't need it, which we, we focus on not having kids have all these one-on-ones because we want to be as independent as possible yeah. not having someone all around. But we understand that because of the needs, that person, that that. Uh, to run an efficient program, you know, temporarily or at first, you may need that level of support, but then eventually after that, we want to look at to feed these, um, the, the, the PCAs out so students can, you know, be as independent as possible without having all these staff members around them. Mm-hmm. So it's one, one teacher, one para, depending on the classroom, you may have one or two, um, you know, students, uh, um, I'm sorry, one or two paraprofessionals uh, yeah. in the classroom. And so the transitions, I mean, I get the six months of, of, uh, of uh, you know, little or, little or no kind of problem behavior is, 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 is makes sense. Um, you're transitioning these kids to sort of any number of schools, right? Uh, I imagine there's, 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 they, they, they could be coming from a lot of different schools. Is that oh, yeah, usually we, uh, the case? Oh yeah, in our in our district in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, there's 22 school districts in one county. 22 districts. Yeah, in one county. Yeah, it's a pretty big county, um, and we also serve uh, students from neighboring counties too. So we get a lot of referrals from outside the county. And each district could have how many schools, just give or take. Oh well, each well each school which each school district can have all like depending on how the size of the schools, some of your schools may have. You know, 15, 17 schools within one district. Wow. So, so there, there, there's potentially hundreds of different schools that these kids oh. could be coming from to come oh, here. Oh, and yeah. So, and so, 
with that in mind, and obviously you don't have a lot of influence at this point um, on sort of, you know, how all those schools are run and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I don't know that those schools will also have, you know, school-wide PBS, you know, frameworks in place. Maybe some will, maybe some won't. Um, what does a transition look like as far as, as far as going to some of these schools where, you know, maybe there isn't a BCBA or there isn't ABA or they don't know all, all these sort of programs. Um, uh, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do the transitions? Uh, well, you mean from students coming from district to us or our uh, district? Uh, us back, you guys back to their regular, yeah. regular schools. Yeah. So um, for me, uh, I, I'm pretty versed in like, knowing what districts have based on my conversation with the supervisors of special education or the building principals. So they're aware mm. of what, so I know which districts have what programs. Okay. So based on that, that will tell me, you know, what, you know, what their behaviors, you know, need to look like, so to speak, before we discharge it. Because, you know, unfortunately there's just, there's just certain criteria because of what the needs are and what they have and what some districts may not have. Mm. Um, so, so let me give you an example. Like we have one student, that's going back, you know, did phenomenal, was struggling the year and a half ago, um, received this individual last October, mm. um, struggled a lot to, to adjust, and this year came on strong, and now it's getting ready to discharge. So mm. um, obviously the individual is kind of nervous and apprehensive. Um, so for discharge, again, the data supports that the individual needs to be going. It's, there's really no reason to keep this individual. Right. Um, program because it's not designed to be a quote-unquote public school where it's designed to just focus on um you know uh, shifting and changing behaviors you know establishing instructional control um making things uh you know that were historically aversive to them to tolerate these things and even mm. you know and even shift it to motivations like things that used to be aversive is now motivating you know mm. i couldn't stand i couldn't stand working now not, you know, not only am I working, I'm enjoy writing and reading and doing certain things, you know. Um, so uh, ensuring that when you transition from our program to a school district, you got, the biggest thing is just making sure that, you know, you got to test for generalization and maintenance. It's hard to do in our program because we don't have, um, quote unquote, uh, other places and other genetic classrooms that downstairs or across where we can just say, okay, go to this classroom with 20 something kids, see how you respond. Mm. So you know, we look at certain ways to see if skills are able to be generalized by, you know, we have a whole early childhood department downstairs um, where, you know, five-year-old kids are downstairs. So, you know, some of our things we can do for our older uh, students, you know, put them in position of like, a, we call it like leadership positions, you know, mm. being able to go out and read to them and help them out and support them. And just like seeing like, you know, in the midst of, you know, 20 something kids downstairs who are obviously younger, but, you know, are they able to tolerate noise? Are they tolerate, you know, tolerating um, certain things that could be overwhelming in the environment? And, you know, and, and that's a way we can just test to find out how they respond. You know, are they going to sit there and uh, engage in problem behaviors with, you know, 20 kids around them? You know, most likely not because they see them as like, the, you know, my little brother, my little sister, mm. but and also two activities that are within or outside the school to find out are they safe? You know, if you go to community events, um, or, you know, are they able to go out there and interact with other people when you yeah. go and like ours? It's like, these are the things we can just find out and just test too. Um, also too, when we transition, uh, we work it out where if the, uh, the individual is ready to go back to district, you know, we do something called extended school year. 
um, and extended school year is that if a student uh, during, during long breaks, if the, if the data supports that um, during long breaks, students are able, um, you see a regression in recruitment, meaning that um, during Christmas break, when you have those 10 days off and you collect data on behavior and you do see a, a spike. And if you do like an academic probe, do you see a dip or a decrease mm -hmm. in the probe? And that, that, that suffice information to say, okay, long breaks or absent, sick, you see a spike, this person qualifies, um, you know, um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, for um, extended school year. But sometimes we'll say, okay, you know what, let's send them to their district instead of our ESY where it's safe, contained, we have structure built in there. Let's see if they can be with other students, but, you know, um, in their homeschool, let's see how they respond, how they interact, how they engage in a different building, in different environment, with the needs are a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. How they and be successful. And that's again, that's another good way to gauge um, how the skills been generalized. Um, and then also, like I alluded to earlier, having those discussions and conversation with our team, with the school district's team, having that continuity and bridge of making sure that our behavior analyst speaks to their, you know, behavior analyst or behavior specialist, making sure that there needs to be communication with anything as far as the plan. Um, just having that conversation before they go back. We always have like end of the year meetings and transition meetings, we call them, to make sure everything that we've done is successful, try to mm. bet as best you can replicate. Because some things they just, school districts are not able to replicate. Yeah. Because they don't have the, the environment uh, infrastructure to do that, you know. Um, but as best they can, they can, they can make it work. Mm. Um, those things are all. So before someone discharged, we always have those meetings with the parents the school district, ourselves, and a team to make sure that everything's ironclad. So when that individual transitions, everyone's ready. Mm -hmm. Cool. And and how and how long does it sort of range? How long those transitions kind of take? Is, is it sort of a thing where you're waiting until the new school year and transitioning them in the fall? Yeah. You know, that sort of, that sort of piece. And so then basically the first month or two of the of the fall is the transition and they just kind of ease in. Yeah. Well, yeah. So typically uh, again, we, we look at like um the duration of time. So uh we we've discharged kids mid-year before. That has not mm. been abnormal. Right. We typically do we typically now again, that's that's in the event for other circumstances that you know, the student's ready, the student wants to go back, and then we can expedite it. Mm -hmm. um, for certain students, we um, it's just a seamless transition. If you kind of finish the year out, then, you know, um, go into like the summer with extended school year, have an opportunity to be around, you know, different environment back in your home school, mm -hmm. and then gives them a little familiarity with the school, maybe some mm -hmm. periods of class, and then they can transition back, you know, by the fall you know, in there, you know, then they have, again, back to the routine of taking the bus to the school, being around potentially your, your teacher, um, or at least in the same school where you'll be, where it's less kids, smaller, mm. half a day, you know, it's, it's, it's the perfect opportunity just to like transition and really generalize these skills across that environment. Cause it's really, mm. again, a dense schedule. You're not really looking at this in, in intense or rigorous schedule. Um, extended school year is designed to be for maintenance. You're not teaching mm -hmm. new skills, you know, it's right. designed whatever skills that, you know, uh, that requires a little more attention. You're just making sure you get for maintenance. So it's it's really typically um, for extended school year, uh, really shouldn't be too many issues. Hmm. And would they always end up going back 
to their the school they started with, or is it possible that maybe the school they were at just was not a good environment altogether, and and going back there could be a bad idea? That uh, at times, you know, that has happened. Those were conversations mm -hmm. uh, that were kind of outside of our realm of what we can do, but that was discussion by some families that you know mm -hmm. some of the students had a very aversive. Uh, experience at a particular school, but mm. typically the school districts that I work with, you know, has done a good job to recognize those concerns and accommodate for that too. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, it's the types of kids, you know, and, and even just saying this sentence, you know, I'm, 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 maybe I'm stereotyping, maybe I'm stigmatizing here, and I'm uh, forgive me if, if that's what's happening, but. If you, I feel like, you know, just from my own experience, that, you know, kids that tend to fall into that kind of emotional support, uh, behavior disorders category, aside from your autistic kids, um, um, uh, because I think, you know, I don't know if this is all true, but it feels like for kids maybe that have autism or, or, or they're autistic or there's like a developmental disability or something, you know, you know, that they were kind of born with, um, um, that is going to, you know, have a play a special role in in, in kind of, uh, you know, the, the the contingencies of their life and how kind of you know behaviors present themselves. But then you've got other, this other sort of sort of category of children who maybe don't have a, a developmental disability diagnosis, but they engage in a lot of you know se severe challenging behavior and 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 the behavior disorder kind of category. As as I sort of think think of it. Um, I find it's often, I think, the case that a lot of these kids are coming from, you know, maybe a place of a lot of trauma, uh, mm -hmm. poverty, um, um, abuse, um, you know, so tra trauma, I guess, fills kind of all those categories, uh, and so on, you know, maybe, 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 uh, you know, foster care, um, you know, those sorts of things. Is there any work that you kind of are doing maybe sort of from that kind of wraparound perspective to sort of, you know, deal with some of the other things that are going to, because they're going to be, I feel like I sort of imagine myself as a, as a kid coming into your school and going, oh, look at this brand new, brand new ceiling, <laughs> um, yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, a, a lovely building, uh, really nice staff, small classes, you know, th this is a place of peace for me um, where, you know, where I can really grow and learn. Uh, but now I'm going back to, you know, my real life. Um, uh, and and uh, and I suppose there's still this, this isn't a residential program. So they're still going home every day. Um, right. um, so there's still those pieces in there. But do, do you do any kind of that wraparound kind of work as far as dealing with some of these sort of, you know, setting events and, and motivating operations? Oh, my that are goodness, man, that's that's. That's uh, half our population. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Those, those things are critical. And yeah. yeah, we deal with a lot of students with a lot of, unfortunately, family, you know, um, you know, issues and concerns and yeah. students who are in foster care, um, students who are residential facilities. Yeah. Um, that all impacts the behavior and their learning history. And again, if you read, you know, we get the intakes and if you read the reports. I mean, it's devastating. Um, yeah. What these young children had to be exposed to or, um been involved in. So, yeah, yeah so we, we definitely treat that. So, you know, obviously mental health is obviously is big. Um, yeah. and, um, that's so too, but we, you know, I personally am not a, um, a mental health, um, specialist or, or you know, for that, though we do have mental specialists or mm. people, folks 
Uh, we have a wonderful licensed, um, you know, social worker who's yeah. with that, and also to a behavior analyst with a counseling background here too. However, you know, I, I just tell our staff, um, you know, we have to, we, we have to obviously uh, treat, treat every situation obviously as presented, but you know, you have to just try your best to keep it from a behavior analytic um, position in the sense of like, you know, mm. although you're going to have some setting events, you know, that can definitely, definitely impact behavior. There's no question about it. I mean, I see it every day, you know, situation happening at schools, students coming in, they're hot and heavy, you know, uh, tears in his eyes, flat, you know, so we make sure we be very proactive and just, you know, if these things are occurring, pull them early, mm. check. But, you know, look, look at it from a specific response. So if a student has, you know, if a particular, um, uh, look at it from like an operant condition, right? So mm. if, if I'm going to ask, you know, a question, which is kind of like the antecedent and the student response and then what are the consequence follows. But if I ask the same question on, on a day that he had an argue with or she had an argue with her parent and this mm. person blows up and flip a chair, obviously, you know, the setting events did kind of have influence on that antecedent. However, we still have to treat it from this perspective of trying to, you know, whether escape a task or, um, if if uh, you try to go out there and some kind of like uh, remove um, some type of preferred item in their hand and they got very upset and that kind of question would kind of evoke a response of like, okay, or may have a different response that wasn't dangerous, um, but now it led to some, something dangerous. You know, you have to still look at it from that kind of contingency of just mm -hmm. saying, okay, the reason why this person got upset is because I asked the person to put this away or I asked yeah. them to get your pencil out to go start writing. Yeah. And this individual, you know, got very, very upset. So that's the way you got to still continue. But you have to factor in that the reason why he or she did get that upset because, you know, these things happen. So that's when you bring in your licensed social worker, your counselor. Yeah. Um, and we build, we build that in a, a behavioral contract, like check-ins three times or two times a day, nine mm. o'clock. 12 o'clock. Nice. So you still have to stay within the principles um, and addressing the needs, but that's the only way, you know, from my experience, and I mean, like I said, you know, being, you know, in the field for a long time and even working, you know, uh, in the mental health field, because, you know, dealing with a lot of kids with a lot of needs and, and the yeah. family sometimes have needs too. Just from my experience and just, you know, you know, reading obviously the literature and, and going to just, my approach is just, you have to treat it as best you can from a behavior analytic approach and still be sensitive to the needs of what the family and the learner has, you know, embodied over the course of their career and use the opportunities. Again, like I said earlier, you build these things within your system. So you develop a behavior contract, you do check-ins, you knowing that, you know, an individual has a rough situation, you make sure you build in strong communication with the families. Mm -hmm. That's bad. So then you beef up reinforcement, right? We know of a situation, he's coming in there, something happened, we pull him right away, do more, much, build in more, some more frequent check ins, um, you know, and provide much more social reinforcement, um, provide much more opportunities for, for breaking an aversive task, um, just to make sure that, um, not that you're working on eggshell, but you want to make mm. sure that you just, you know, providing a safe environment, but also understanding that you're meeting the needs too. So. That's kind of the, the way we, uh, you know, we kind of approach it as well, too. But there's still obviously that clinical piece, um, although we're public sector, but there's still a clinical piece where, um, you know, there's a collaboration with um, a partial, we have a partial hospitalization program, which hmm. are program that service the same students we have, but 
um, they're able to provide, um, you know, uh, therapy for them, talk therapy, you know, for, you know, for them. So our licensed social worker continues to, you know, communicate with the psychiatrist mm. for any management or any kind of psychotropic medication that needs to be altered. That was a conversation they had. They asked for information. And, and, and this is, I think for me, uh, as a behavior analyst, this is something that I take very much pride in. I just think, you know, as a behavior analyst, like, I mean, obviously stay within your scope of your practice. I'm not a psychiatrist. I, I, I know mm-hmm. about medication. I'm aware. I'm very averse in medication as far as what the purpose of certain medications for. But I don't know why to prescribe how to, that's, that's not my thing. So yeah. the only thing we can do with psychiatrists is, uh, I always tell my behavior analyst, you know, when you, you know, uh, if a parent tells us, hey, we're going to go get a med check, give them the data, look, let you know, and then give them, here's how your child right now is um uh here here are the behavior data points and look mm. what's going so they can give it because you know i've been in many um clinic visits with parents and yep. very unfortunate i'm being honest it's very unfortunate but just you know a lot a lot of the medication that's been uh, for the most part that's being offered to families is based on anecdotal notes i mean it's just how's the mm-hmm. child he's blown up in school what is he saying he's he's fidgety he moves around psychiatrist will talk to him interview him talk to him um, yep. and then just prescribe medication. And again, I am not saying that um, their their uh, procedure is this inefficient and unethical way. I'm just saying mm-hmm. there's got to be a better way to show what's really going on rather than just saying my child is just, he can't sit still. Um, yeah. You know, so we have to really reflect what the behaviors are so the psychiatrist can make a decision. And once a child is placed on psychotropic medication, we track that to find out where the trends are. There's variability and there's bounce. Then we look at like, yeah. okay, what's going on? But if there's it's leveling out or you see behaviors decreasing, you know, I, I don't want to say it has quote unquote, you know, experimental control, so to speak, or but I do want to just, you know, that that could be uh, a good indication that maybe the medication was effective. Um, you know, uh, and we're not at a place where really we want to do like any kind of experimental design because if a kid's mm-hmm. really extremely tough and and having significant problem behaviors and a child's on medication. And you know levels are low, and behaviors are extremely low. You know we're not inclined to do a reversal design. We're not <laughs> or any kind of no, control. no, of course we're not. not. We're not. Yeah, we're not. We're not doing any kind of experimental um, design right now. I think if if it's enough data points to show that potentially it's effective, and I'd rather just um, go out there and just you know um, uh, continue continue with this trend right now because the trend's looking good. Down. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> so, no, yeah, 100%. So that's kind of that kind of answers your kind of response. You know, that aspect of the wraparound for the men, you know, for that level of the trauma and the mental health as well, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, and I, and I hear you. I, I, I mean, obviously, you're, we're not we're not psychiatrists, and we're not certainly going to tell them how to do their job. But I think they do. They do tend to appreciate. Um, um, you know, if you're building a good, good rapport, um, you know, having that data and whatnot, because you know, sort of a ten minutes a 10 minute consult that they they're able to do or a five minute consult. They don't get a lot of information and anecdotes is usually all they're going to get to sort of make those choices. And so I'm, I imagine they, they will appreciate some of this data you're able to share with them. So that's awesome. Um, just think, I mean, we could go on and on about sort of these different things and, and, and I, I probably won't dive in too much into sort of the OBM leadership bit. There are a lot of great, um, um, uh, presentations you've done and podcasts you've done, which I'm going to put in the show notes, uh, where where you do a lot of talk about on leadership, some really good stuff with uh, Doctor Doctor Polly and whatnot. Um, that uh, sounds pretty exciting, and um, uh, um, 
I'm, I'm looking forward to connecting with him as well at Baba. He's a guy I've never met before, um, but I've heard lots of good things about, and I hear nothing but good things about the work you two have been doing together. Um, um, with that out too, and uh, um, wondering, um, uh, you know, about um, um, uh, kind of shifting gears a bit uh, to, to kind of some of the other stuff you're doing um, uh, in terms of uh, Baba and the BMBA. Um, just to kind of get present, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, is kind of part of my uh, kind of Road to Baba series. Um, you know, this episode will be out before uh, June fifteenth, uh, 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 so that uh, folks that are headed to Baba maybe can get a little taste of what they might might be seeing from you, um, as well as uh, you know, just just learn a little bit more about you. So, I'm curious. Uh, uh, first off, about um, you know uh, Baba in general, kind of you know, just tell me about sort of. Your, your sort of experiences, perspective on 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 Baba and, and the Baba conference, kind of how you found Baba. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting story for folks uh, because a lot of folks have come to Baba in different ways. And you know, I know so I know a lot of folks came to Baba through the the Facebook group that Cat Jackson started back in 2017. Uh, but I know there's a lot of black behavior analysts that don't go on Facebook or behavior analysts. Let's just say black behavior analysts. There's lots of behavior analysts that don't go on Facebook that, uh, you know, so there's got to be other ways to kind of make those connections. So just curious about your sort of uh, introduction to Baba and, uh, and, and, and what your experience has been so far with that organization. Yeah, well, well, I first heard about Baba back in, during the pandemic. It was right at the, at the peak of the pandemic. Um, you know, you're a behavior analyst and you get those, you get solicited for emails, um, for all these things I'm looking at it. Yeah. So I just erase, erase, erase. Yeah. Don't even and then one kept saying, you know, Baba, I'm like, why is he getting this Baba stuff? So I don't know why. And I typically don't even do this, but I clicked in it and I said, you know, um, you know, uh, I'm like, I'm a black, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, behavior analyst, you know, like black behavior analyst. I'm like, get out of here. There's no way it's black. <laughs> Analyst. I'm looking through it. I'm like, oh no, this is legit. Is this a real site? Wow. So I'm like, this can't be a real site. So then I, <laughs> I emailed, I emailed an individual. I'm like, oh wow, this is a real site. And then um, I was in correspondence uh, with someone. I, I believe it was um, the, the, the former president. Her name is Adrian Bradley. Um, yeah. She, we were going back and forth. So I was asking tons of questions. I'm like, is this real? Is this? She's like, no, yeah, this is real. This is not a, you know, I'm, I'm messaging you back, so it has to be real, right? So I'm like, <laughs> Are you trying to take my, you know, so um, then they did a call for papers um, that I emailed the person back. And I just said, you know, I asked more information and, I, and then I told him, I said, hey, call the paper. I said, I'd be interested in doing that. And then they, you know, um, they said, what would you want me to speak on? I said, here's my background. And they said, yeah, we would love for you to come. So then I, I then I did it. And it's a true story. So I, I um, this is back in 2020. So then I just applied. Uh, I'm sorry, 2021 is rather. So then I went in there and I just did my paper. I was like, but I was scheduled to go out there, um, you know, last year. And I was like very apprehensive of even going. Cause I was like, ah, you know, it's Father's Day because they do it during the Juneteenth weekend. I was mm. very apprehensive. So I was like, nah, do I really want to go? And I was very apprehensive, I'm not even lying to you. It was the day prior i think it was that it was that thursday i left on saturday morning of last year it was 2022 rather so um it was the, the two days prior i was just i was finding a way not to go i was like oh, i don't want to go to detroit i was like you know i don't fly out there and i just talked it through the family i was like you know what and some friends like you know it's a great opportunity i said you know what? i'm gonna go i yeah. went there 
Um, you know, uh, when I flew up there last uh, last year, it was on a Saturday morning, got there. And I, when I got to the event, I mean, I, I, I almost fell over. I was floored. I was floored, mm-hmm. number one, that it was, a, it was uh, I, me personally, professionally, I, I've never seen all these Black Bear analysts. I was, mm-hmm. I was like, I really, this is like amazing. And, um, you know, so that was within itself. The facility was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Well, well organized um, by all the, uh, the, um, the folks for BABA. And then the presentations were, were excellent. Like we had a lot of speakers there and a lot of um, folks who, you know, whether they're going for like some of like a symposium or a panel yeah. or even a presentation, it was absolutely excellent. Um, and then just networking with a lot of people from, you know, different different states, different cities it was beautiful. Mm. Um, you know, and then, you know, they have a lot of events, you know, that they, uh, last year was the first in-person. I think 2020 or 21 was a, was a virtual one. Gotcha. Last year was the first in-person, 2022, and this is the second year in-person, but I think third annual, because the first year was uh, virtual during the pandemic. Right, right. Um, so, you know, just meeting that I met, um, you know, obviously a lot of folks from Baba. I met Pauly at Baba. Uh, Merrill Winston, met him mm-hmm. um, at Baba. So, um, it was just like, wow. And like I said, the, the, the presentations across the board were excellent. The people were phenomenal. And it was just like, oh, this is this is where I need to be. Like, this was mm-hmm. phenomenal. And then, you know, the after party was just amazing. You know, mm-hmm. it, just, it was just fun. Right? Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, it's just, it really promote, obviously, black, you know, behavior analysts within your own community, supporting your own community, um, which I think is beautiful. And, um, you know, take pride in the community and really using the science to help your own community. And that's mm-hmm. kind of things so, like that's what it is. So, you know, you can't wait for anyone. Just get out there to get collectively. There's a lot of intelligent people out there. Um, mm-hmm. Go out there and let's bond together, work together and, and just support the community using science. Um, but it was just again, it was just a great atmosphere, great people. And it was just something I said, like, yeah, this is like an annual I'll check check more for me every year. This is like I said, yeah. it was just an event that I it exceeded expectations. You know, yeah. um, exceeded because I just didn't know I was walking into because I never heard of it. And here yeah. I am, this beautiful facility and beautiful organization, and it was well organized. It was just like this is amazing. Right. Top yeah. And so those collaborators, a couple you mentioned, Dr. Winston and uh, Dr. Gavoni, and, and then you've started doing some work with those folks. But you met them both at that conference. So that's where you kind of made those yeah. contacts. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And also like Adrian and all, all of the board members and, um, you know, Jerron uh, Trotman, too. You know, uh, I saw them in passing, but we didn't really connect because yep. you know, I was there for one, only one day and I had to go back the next day. Mm. Kind of how we met, um, we connected. Um, you know, and Adrian brought us back in there. We started communicating, and that's kind of um, how we got together too. So it was a great. Baba's an amazing uh, organization. Awesome. I'm curious when you first got that email and and you thought it was sort of spam or whatever, and, and sort of didn't think it was legit. What? Why was that? What was kind of your thought process that this this can't be for real? Well, because I, I, I because I haven't seen. Any black beer analyst? Like I, I was, I remember mm. before I met, I was googling. I'm like, I really, I like this is back like before the pandemic hit. I'm like, yeah. black beer analyst? Is that anybody out there? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. this is like you know, and I wasn't. Um, I believe I was on LinkedIn, but I never really even like even I wasn't really that active in social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I didn't even think to look. I was like, oh man, like there's really, you know, and it, yeah, I think my learning history, like the majority of co- uh, ABA conferences I went to, 
a lot of folks were majority more, you know, actually all more white. I never yeah. maybe one or two Spanish um, folks sure. from a different country, but it was either European uh, from other country or majority of them were um, happened to be white. Um, yeah. So I was, I just you know, I live in Pennsylvania where obviously I live in a region where Philadelphia. I'm about to, you know, an hour from Philadelphia. Right. My work is like 30 minutes from Philadelphia. So you would yeah. think, you know, Philadelphia, the Pittsburgh area was heavy populated, but it really not. So yeah, that's why, that's why I didn't think exist. So yeah, well, and, and and I think so. Part of it is, and when I had Jaron on, he, you know, he kind of talked about what one because I want to just chat a little bit about sort of your experiences with the the the, the BMBA. And as, as the VP, um, you know, one thing Jaron's kind of said to me was that, you know, uh, and it, it's an interesting conversation that, you know, I, I've never sort of had before where we talk about a group of men being in minority, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, and now the, the obvious qualifier, these are black men, uh, and that's the difference here. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're in a field, you know, applied behavior analysis field, you know, is something like, you know, 90, 90 plus percent women. Um, and it's also probably a similar percentage uh, uh, of, of white folks. Um, uh, and then and then I've seen sort of the, you know, the the T-shirts that were out around the 3.93%. I think that's up to like 4.21 or something now, which isn't much of a jump um, as far as, you know, a number of black folks um, um, in, in behavior analysis. Um, but the number of black men mm-hmm. is probably low, super low. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that alone is probably a, a good enough reason. But um, what, what, why do you think? What, what's sort of the value in having the BMBA, and, and why are you involved with it? I mean, it seems like a, an obvious question, but I'm just curious what your take is. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org. The third secret word is reinforcement. Yeah. So just, you know, for the BMBA, um, you know, Black Men in Behavior, you know, analysis, it was just... Uh, Jerron Trotman is the one, you know, kind of the founder of that. He, he wanted something after going to Baba, you know, yeah. was inspired to do something for, yeah. for men. So, um, Adrian connected us and, you know, me and brother Jerron, we connected immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in constant conversation. Um, so it was just, you know, he just, he um, had a vision and, you know, I, I would help him, you know, with, with some things. And then he just uh, putting together a team. He wanted to put together a team with folks with experience. So, and, and, you know, who really has the same kind of vision and mission he has. So he asked me, you know, to be the, the vice uh, president. And I was more than humble and honored to, you know, to say, I mean, how can I say no to that? Um, and, it was, you know, it's been great. Um, so the purpose of this is just really like, uh, I think it's really important that we have in our field, 
uh, again, to your point, you know, for, for the, the gender part, you know, the majority of the field is going to be, you know, women, which is not a bad thing at all. Um, it's actually a beautiful thing, but, you know, we have an opportunity to build some men who mm. are RBTs. So there's a lot of men who are RBTs, but we got to start mm. building an analyst. Gotcha. And I, think, and I think that's, you know, that's what you got to do is because the being a being analyst will open up more doors and opportunity. You know, mm. it's like I, I look at, I this, it, it, important to me, I'm looking at the labor force, right? You know, you have an opportunity to, you know, be the labor, you know, as far as, you know, the workers or kind of like to be, you know, the manager or the leader. Um, yep. And I think, and RBTs are fantastic. We need them and they're very critical. Um, but if you have, uh, a, you know, a number of black men who are RBTs, you know, really driving them to become behavior analysts so they can go out there and make more of an impact because the more behavior analysts we can get um, in society, no matter what race, but for particularly for black people, if we can get some more men who are behavior analysts, they can just mm. do more within your own community, yeah. um, out and training, supporting, um, you know, uh, families and staff yeah. providing, you know, uh, treatment, um, you know, within, again, within your own community. I think about this, you know, look at all the, the schools in our city, right. And then these inner city that overpopulated, you know, and it's great to have a lot of women there, but you know, th there's, there's some kids that yeah. uh, would benefit from having just, you know, just someone that looks like them and the male figure, which is very critical. We all know that. You know, you don't need to be a behavior analyst and know that that certain kids would benefit from just having the presence of a male that can maybe be some type of, um, you know, figure for a father, uncle, brother that you know, they may lack or, you know, motivate to have. Sure. Um, but, but again, it's just more of a representation of your community and going out there to provide support. So imagine mm -hmm. all the men who can now provide supports in school, you know, um, mm -hmm. or maybe be you have more behavior analysts who are men. Black men who are going into prisons and providing support and treatment for mm. prisons. You know, I think that's where that's where it is. Um, so that yeah, I think that's yeah. the mission is really it's all about. Just you got to go out there and just elevate. You know, it's great cool. to have the RBTs and there's a high you know uh, number of RBTs, but I think about maybe twelve or thirteen percent, you know, are black, which is mm. represents a number in in America, twelve percent, thirteen percent. But you, we gotta push to increase. Um, more behavior analysts, you know, to at least mm. match the percentage of us. So that's that's what we say on, you know, um, underrepresentative, you know, upper rep, uh, under uh, representation of, you know, behavior analysts. So yeah, you have yeah. 13%, but you only have 4% are BCBAs out of that 4%, you know, like less than 1% are men. Right, right. So right. that's when you got to, we got to, we got to just be better at and kind of like this is kind of beefing it up to, start motivating them to just become behavioral to begin and really help the field out. Awesome. Well, I'm sure there's going to be uh, probably some, some, some black men this at this year's conference that, you know, weren't, weren't at the last and they're, they're looking forward to connecting is, uh, is BMBA doing anything at all at this conference? Is there anything going on as far as a meetup yeah. or kind of hang out? What's, what's yeah, they have a meetup. So Thursday, they're going to, they're going to have a meet and greet. Um, at, you know, we're looking at one of the um, black owned business restaurants to go out there and do a meet and greet and folks come out there. You can come out there too. Um, ben, and then um, come out, and then they just have an open dialogue conversation to have this opportunity to talk about, you know, what we do. Um, and then also, uh, you know, during during the time, we'll have an opportunity to have a section or an area where we can just um, folks have questions during, the, um, you know, during the trainings and during the workshops. Yeah. I'll have a table to really go over, um, ask us what we want to do as well too. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and there'll be an opportunity for Jerron Trotman to have a conversation with the folks to let us know in a public forum. Of yeah. what, you know, I'll, I'll let, 
I'll let him and then, you know, we'll get more when you're there. We'll get some more. You'll, you'll see. We'll yeah. talk about. You'll have an opportunity to share what we're doing and, um, you know, to everyone. And, you know, for those who want to be a part of that, too, or be affiliated, you know, he'll give you more information on that. Fantastic. So, yeah. And then that meetup on the Thursday night, that's the 15th, is through the uh, the the Black Health Connect group yes. that does uh, those meetups sort of all around the country for Black professionals sort of across the board. And I believe, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this particular event, well, it is, it's hosted by BABA, but is it possible that there will be Black professionals from other fields there? Or will that just be the BABA folks? Oh, for the, for the Thursday? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Bob folks will be there. I'm not too sure. I'm quite sure if other professionals potentially may be there because obviously yeah, yeah. Help, does service supports for all black businesses and other. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you um, get to yeah, but so it's an opportunity for networking. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. an opportunity, you know, for networking. Um, you know, for that though. Wonderful. But, well, I know there's a a link to sort of RSVP, and we'll we'll throw that in the show notes. Like I said, this episode will be coming out uh, before the fifteenth. Uh, so folks will get a chance to to get those details. Bruce, I appreciate the opportunity to sort of do a on the fly interview with you uh, with with not a lot of prep- preparation. You're 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 a man that's clearly full of knowledge and ideas and and passion and uh, and brilliance. Uh, and it really and it really comes out and sort of, you know, uh, the the plethora of information you kind of shared with us today, and I really appreciate you taking time out of a busy June in in the school year. You've already got a lot going on. You're going to go down to Baba as well. It's going to take some time out of your day too. So I really appreciate you taking some time to come on and chat with me. Uh, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. It was a fantastic uh, interview. So I appreciate you reaching out, and I appreciate the collaboration. Um, you know, opportunities to share you know the good things that myself and the staff are doing to help serve kids. So I appreciate you, Ben. Right on. Thank you, sir.